financial research, policy, and practice me. I am your host, Jonathan Ferguson. Our episodes contain interviews with researchers and discuss evidence-based strategies that policymakers and practitioners can implement to strengthen financial well-being for individuals at all stages of life. For this episode, we have an interview with Dr. Daniel Schneider and Dr. Leah Abrams. Dr. Schneider is a professor of sociology at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He has written on class inequality in parenting, the role of economic resources in marriage, divorce, and fertility, the effects of the Great Recession, and the scope of household financial fragility. Dr. Abrams is an assistant professor of community health at the School of Arts and Sciences at Tufts University. Her research and teaching interests include social epidemiology, health policy, population aging, mortality trends, work and retirement, as well as mental health. We will discuss their research project titled, Older Workers Working Longer, The Role of Precarious Work. Thanks for joining us today, Danny and Leah. It's great to have you on the Financial Findings podcast. First question for you is, what has been a financial aha moment in your life? And that's something that you learned from someone or discovered yourself that has been important in your financial life. Awesome. Uh, this is Danny. I'll take this one uh, to start at least. It's, you know, it's hard to call it an aha because I feel like it is so deep in me. But but if I were to call it a revelation, it's that thrift stores are amazing. So I grew up taking the subway with my mom on the weekends from Brooklyn to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where the good thrift shops were. And that's where we got all our clothes and a lot of other stuff, too. And that just became like real deep as like the, the way that you save money on those things, but also as like a, a totally reasonable weekend activity to do as a family to go to the thrift shop. And that is something I have endeavored to pass down. Well, first I had to um, had to win over my wife to the cause, which I did. And then I've endeavored to pass it down to my kids, which they have now embraced. But now we also get the benefits that it's now people have come to see that this is an extremely environmentally conscious thing to do, that you are giving second life to products that don't need to be you know, extracted and created, along with being a really economical way to go, even if your hit rate is like you know a third. But yeah, that's a great answer. Thanks. What about you, Leah? Yeah, that is a good answer and like inspires me to want to go thrifting this weekend. I think an important lesson for me that my dad taught me and my siblings, I think when we were like in high school or going into college was to think really hard about how we use credit cards before we ever got one. And so to think about the benefits in terms of like building a credit history and using the reward points and having a little like financial protection, like a buffer between you and um you're purchasing from but also he made us like really think about how interest and debt works with credit cards and instilled in us that we are we were never to use a credit card to spend more money than we had and like we had to really understand that before we like got a credit card and i feel grateful for that lesson because i think that it can be really uh, a trap to fall into with credit card debt and i feel like i was warned very early on and i went in with like a clear sense of uh, how to try to avoid that and so i feel like grateful for that lesson early yeah, that's a great lesson considering how much credit, I mean, the credit system impacts our financial lives. It's hard to to move through your life financially, in the United States at least, and not not be impacted by your credit profile significantly. So both great answers. 
All right. So uh, next question is, if you all would tell us uh, about your academic and professional background so we can learn a little more about you. I'll start. So I have a master's in public health in epidemiology. And for my doctorate, I switched departments to health policy. So I sort of have an interdisciplinary background. And now I work as a population health and aging researcher. So my work sort of touches on epidemiology and demography and a bit of sociology. And one leg of my research, one art, um, is life expectancy trends. So trends in mortality in the U.S., why we're living longer than we have throughout the century, but also why we're not kind of continuing to increase our life expectancy in the U.S. and inequalities and who's living longer and who's not, who's benefiting from sort of advances in disability-free life expectancy too. And then the other area that I study is sort of the implications of an aging society for work. So the idea that like, if we're living longer, maybe we should be working longer, but who is actually living longer, who has the health and the function to work longer and what are the obstacles health-wise and also in the workplace for people to work into old age. Danny, what about you? My background is as a sociologist and a demographer. And a lot of my early work was on uh, families and inequality on you know, differences in patterns of marriage and fertility and parenting time with kids. And what I came to see in a lot of that work was that underlying many of these inequalities were profound inequalities in the labor market and in the kind of jobs that that young people and spouses and parents had access to. And that really inspired me and my co-author to start uh, trying to trying to study those determinants. And what we found was that we didn't always have the data we needed to do so. We wanted to understand how work schedules affected well-being or parenting. We didn't have anywhere to go for that. And so I sort of, in some ways, became a sociologist of labor and a labor market researcher a little by accident in that I was interested in these outcomes, got interested in, in some novel you know, causes, and then had to learn how to, how to measure and collect data on those causes. And that has really taken me firmly into the world of sort of labor practices and inequality and labor policy and sort of business practice. And so I'm on a, you know, I'm on a journey here. So now that you all have given us uh, some information about your background and you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm hoping you all go into more depth as what motivated you all to complete this specific research project. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, the U.S. population is aging and the workforce is aging. And as a response, social security policies have tried to incentivize workers to stay in the workforce for longer with the idea that if we're living longer, then we, um, instead of like elongating this retirement period, maybe we should elongate working lives. And so there are incentives now for people to retire at older ages. You'll get a higher payment from social security if you retire at say 67 than at 62. But a sort of accidental side effect of that policy is that it rewards people who have sort of jobs that they can do into old age. So people who have jobs that can accommodate their bodies as they're aging, people who have like control over their work schedules, people who have um, high pay, which is kind of like incentivizes another year or two on the job compared to a social security payment. They have all the incentives they need to stay in the labor force for longer. And then people who, exit early because maybe they have a health decline or a disability or a caregiving responsibility, or they just have a job that's really difficult to do as you age, they kind of get penalized for that by getting lower social security payments for the rest of their life. So I started to sort of think about that problem and the inequalities of that policy. And I wanted to think about older workers who are kind of in these jobs that don't necessarily accommodate their bodies as they're aging, that are really stressful, 
Um, and then I sort of partnered up with the Shift Project, which is run by Danny and his co-author, Kristen, because they have access to all of this amazing data on working conditions and job quality that aren't available in a lot of data sets on older adults. And so I was like, I have these questions about older adults and older workers. And he was like, I have all of these data on, on workers in the service sector. And the service sector is a sector in which people do have jobs that are really stressful, where you don't have a lot of control, where you don't necessarily have high pay. And so they're the kinds of workers that I was concerned about in terms of the aging workforce. And so we teamed up to sort of look at in the service sector, what are the working conditions of older workers and how do those working conditions relate to their job satisfaction and sort of their ability and interest in staying in the workforce as they're getting older. Yeah, service sector employees seem to often be forgotten about or have challenges that many other employees don't. I find that as a trend um, in lots of different research. Um, and it's something that I'm always curious to learn more about. So, um, but just looking at the overall inequalities um, based on how the system is structured now is, is really interesting. Uh, so what constraints or limitations would you say there are for this research? Yeah, I mean, I can take this one. So as Leah said, we sort of identified this, um, this, this correspondence where there's a need for data on job conditions for older workers and a need to understand how that shapes their health and well-being and their longevity and work and their security, you know, when they exit work. Um, and Shift Project happens to study, you know, collect exactly that data on the service sector. Um, the limit, though, is that we collect exactly that data on the service sector, only the service sector. So our focus has really, you know, quite resolutely uh, been on workers who are employed in subsectors like food service, retail, delivery and fulfillment, big box stores like Walmart and Target, fast food chains like, you know, Taco Bell and McDonald's. In fact, our data is not just those subsectors, but specifically workers at about 150 of the largest firms in the U.S. So one way to see that is that that's perfect. That's exactly the kinds of jobs that we want for these questions. But it means that our comparisons are constrained. Leah said at the beginning, hey, for workers who have high incomes, um, who have a lot of control over their schedules, who maybe have a lot of occupational prestige, it may be one thing. For workers who lack those, another. We are mostly not. We're not going to observe, you know, the surgeons and the uh, uh, corporate law partners and the small business owners even. Instead, we're observing hourly workers in this sector now. Within that sector, there's actually a lot of variation. I mean, that's one interesting thing that comes out of this work with, that we're doing and, and more generally at other projects. Things are really different at Costco than they are at Dollar General. And hey, even within a firm, things are different depending on who your manager is and where you work and you know who you are. And so in a way, what we get are really you know, careful comparisons. We're not comparing doctors and waitresses. We're comparing a, a, a cashier at one place who has schedule stability and decent wages and access to benefits against a cashier at a very similar place who who for complex you know economic and 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 industrial relations reasons lacks those things please tell me what did you all's research find tell us more about it yeah so we have one paper that's out now in the gerontologist that was specifically focused on the work schedules of older workers in these um you know, retail and food industries like Danny was describing. So what we found is that the work schedules were actually more stable for older workers compared to younger workers. But even so, more than 80% of older workers, that was workers between ages 50 and 80 years old, 
experience at least one kind of schedule instability. And for that, we are considering um, having less than two weeks notice of your work schedule, being on call for a shift, having a last minute schedule canceled or your timing changed or having to work what's called a closing shift, which means you have to close and then you don't get much time off before you're expected to come back to open. Um, so those kinds of schedule instability are still really common for older workers. And we looked at how that kind of schedule instability or unpredictability was associated with a whole bunch of um, outcomes related to well-being and job satisfaction. And we found that among older workers specifically, having less predictable schedules was associated with more psychological distress, poor quality sleep, work-family conflict, economic insecurity, and job dissatisfaction, as well as reports that you're intending to look for a new job. So sort of all of the bad outcomes that we looked at, it was associated with each of them. And interestingly, it was most strongly associated with work-family conflict, which is an outcome we often associate with parents of young children. But even older workers have family responsibilities, um, people that they're caring for. And so they also experience the same kind of work-family conflict when their schedules are unpredictable. So that work is out now. And then we have some ongoing work that's with some preliminary results where we're looking at technology in the workplace with the sort of question about whether more technology in the workplace is making older workers' jobs sort of more fun, maybe accommodating them in certain ways, or whether the new technology is just making the job more stressful and less appealing. Um, so for those findings, we're looking at technology like self-checkout, robots that are stocking shelves or taking inventory, as well as technology used to surveil workers to like track their speed um, and reward them or potentially sanction them for their speed at work. And what we're finding is that older workers, um, when we control for a whole bunch of things in the regression results, so you know, we're controlling for where they are and their sociodemographic factors and things like that, we're finding that surveillance and sanctioning are negatively associated with job satisfaction and positively associated with wanting to look for a new job, whereas there were not really clear associations with technology and sales or with robots. So that's some of sort of the preliminary findings we're hoping to do more with that research in this upcoming term. Um, but it's interesting to see sort of how these changes in the workplace and the service sector might be relating to how older workers can see whether they want to stay in the workforce or if they'll exit. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I'll be curious to see what what you all continue to find, um, but the parent or the workforce family dynamic piece really stood out to me because it didn't. I didn't immediately think about that as a possible issue. I, I just didn't. Um, I thought about what exactly what you mentioned, like the the parent child much younger um, situation. But then I also realized that. Um, beyond what older workers may have, the issues they have in their families, some of them are also caretakers for grandchildren and things like that. And that could come up as well. So while they may not be the quote unquote parent, they are a caretaker and they assume lots of responsibility in that. And that's just not something that came to mind right away. I appreciate you sharing all those details there. Jonathan, the dynamic you mentioned there of sort of like these dual or even triple roles for older workers that they may not, you know, their kids may be grown, but there may be grandkids and they may also be workers. That's actually something we found in some early qualitative work we did on the project where we were talking to working parents about how they manage childcare when their schedules, like Leah described, were all over the place and unpredictable. And one thing that came really clear was that many of these parents relied on grandparents to be caregivers, that 
when they were they the prime age worker was on call well that meant that somebody else had to be on call to care for their kid and when their shift got changed the last minute well that meant that somebody else's you know child care shift had to change the last minute and what that is for older for older people for this grandparent generation um is not it's not the grandma necessarily sitting at home just waiting to get the call right it's the grandma also has a job and so in some sense what we see in these labor practices are that employers are not just taxing workers, but they're taxing whole family networks with this kind of instability. And then it really ripples through and it can depress labor force participation for older workers who are asked to take on this, you know, sort of buffer role. Um, and so I think we need to see how these kinds of practices not just affect, you know, parents and kids, but also older workers and really, you know, whole networks, whole communities in this way that need to come together to try to buffer themselves against these, these uh, unpredictable forces. You began to to talk about some of the implications that the research has, in, I mean, in your, your comments just there. Um, so I wonder if there are other things you all want to mention as far as possible implications stemming from your research. Um, you know, in short, so what, now what, is the question that I often like to ask. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I mean, I, let me talk a little bit to it on the, on the labor side and then... Uh, Leah, feel free to jump in on, on, on sort of retirement policy side. So you know, I think one thing we've seen in, in the shift data really clearly that we see in the work that we've talked about today is that there is variation in these aspects of job quality uh, across firms, that some firms are, are really designing jobs in a very different way and, and in some ways in a more progressive and worker-friendly way than other firms. Um, if we look to a firm, I mentioned Costco earlier, but you can take Trader Joe's or even In-N-Out Burger in California. The jobs look really different there than they do at other firms in the same sectors. And so you can look to that and say, okay, well, let's just encourage firms to take the high road. But what we also see is that that's not a widespread set of practices and that each of those firms is pretty idiosyncratic in their own way. Maybe the founder has faith-based commitments that shape how they treat workers, or maybe it's owned by a, a Nordic holding company that has very different norms, or maybe it's the original family that holds on to this company is deeply invested in coworkers as a kind of family. Whatever the explanation, it doesn't often carry over to a whole industry. And so what we've come to see is that those high road companies, in some sense, are an existence proof that that, that kind of practices are possible. But if you really want to see them broadly in place, what we need are labor standards that make them not just possible, but legally required. And labor standards like that can function to raise the floor on job quality for workers in the sector. For older workers, it can give them the stability of schedules that may help them make work more sustainable and you know, higher wages and access to benefits. Those things can be part of our social contract. We can decide as a society that these this is the minimum of what we owe each other in the workplace. And what we have seen in, in our work and in other work is that when you raise the floor in this way, you often narrow the gap. That when we raise the floor for the you know those workers in the most difficult positions, we we also reduce the inequalities that exist between them and other workers. But those inequalities are often ones that also are reduced in terms of gender gaps and race ethnic inequality, given the concentration of disadvantaged workers in these sectors. Leah, do you have thoughts you'd like to add? Yeah, I think the thing that I'll add is that those kinds of policies that Danny's describing that. Um, you know, like secure scheduling policies that improve working conditions in the service sector. 
aren't necessarily targeting older workers specifically, but older workers benefit from them. And they're the kinds of policies that might make a job more hospitable so that someone could say, you know, I'll, I'll stick it out for another year or two, even though I have the option of, of um, claiming social security because my job is, is, is not like, it's, it, it's not taking away from my quality of life. It's not harming my well-being. And so I think that even though we don't think of those as necessarily retirement policies, Raising the floor, as Dan described, can go really far to improving the economic security of people in retirement by just enabling them to stay in the workforce a little bit longer. Uh, so that, I think, is is an interesting like reframe on some of those policies. And in terms of the now what, we're um, hoping to do a sort of longitudinal analysis to look at outcomes. We're right now just using job satisfaction and this question about likelihood of looking for a new job as a sort of proxy for whether or not we think workers will stay in the job. But we have data to actually look at their behavior and see who leaves. And so that's a, a plan for our next step is to look at longitudinally who stays in jobs and who leaves based on these kinds of conditions and the technology that's in the workplace. Everything's connected in some ways, right? It feels like everything is connected. And so I appreciate you kind of laying out, I don't know, some of the things that this research that's connected to that doesn't necessarily come to mind right away as being like a primary issue. So I think that's really important for us to consider. And the fact that you all are following up on this and doing <laughs> a next step with that. So I'm excited to learn more about that when that occurs as well. If there are others like me who are interested in learning more about this research or other things that you all are both or individually tied into, how can we learn about that? Where would we go? We promise to keep everybody up to date um, by if they check out uh, the Shift Project's website, which is shift.hks.harvard.edu. Also, you know, check us out on our individual faculty pages. You won't find much of me on Twitter, on X these days, or on Blue. <laughs> but you know, you, you you can probably find us there uh, as well. Well, that's great. It's been fantastic to have you all with us on the podcast. Such great work. So I'm looking forward to learning more. Thank you all so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Please follow our podcast on your podcast app to remain updated on the latest work from the UW-Madison Retirement and Disability Research Center. You can also visit our center on the web at cfsrdrc.wisc.edu. There, you'll find our latest news, publications, and webinars. Until our next episode, let's all keep doing our best to support equity and financial security.